You ready for the word? I'm excited tonight. I'll meet you in the Gospel of Matthew. If you bought a Bible, hard copy or digital version, I don't care. I would like for you to be able to see the text, so I'll meet you in Matthew 9 in a moment. Tonight, I'm going to minister on the great physician. In 30 years of ministry, I started ministry in April of 1993. We celebrated 30 years just a few months ago. In 30 years of ministry, I don't think I've ever preached on the great physician. Now, maybe in my very early days when I was trying to preach everything I'd heard everybody else preach, and I was just trying to preach all the great titles, you know, all the things you're supposed to preach when you go preach, I might have preached the great physician. It obviously didn't make a great impact on me because I put that one in the dustbin of preaching files and left it alone for a long, long time. And it's not because I don't believe Jesus is a healer. I honestly, I believe that Jesus, I believe God can do whatever God wants to do to the condition of his children to improve the condition. He's a good father. I've seen God heal people. Uh, I believe that Jesus died and in his death, his body was broken for our body. I believe we can receive of his body, his brokenness, uh, what's been broken in him, whole in us and his blood for all of what ails us. I believe all of that with all of my heart. I believe in healing Jesus. But I haven't preached a great physician because for a long time, all that really meant to me was that Jesus came to heal people. And if you're going to get up and preach the great physician, that what you should probably do at the end of it is say that if you have a sickness in this room tonight, come meet the great physician. You can't preach an hour on the Jesus that will heal everyone he touches and then someone come up and not get healed. And I know there are ministries that specialize in teaching and preaching healing. I believe in the gifts of healings. And I've seen God do miraculous things, but I don't feel it's my call and that it's my message. And so I've left it alone for a long time. But I'm on a journey of wrestling over, not just wrestling over the scriptures, but of encountering Christ anew. You know what I mean by that? Encountering Christ anew. I met Jesus a long time ago, but I didn't meet Jesus once. I've met Jesus over and over and over again. In so many encounters, I've, I don't count them any longer. I don't, I don't just count a, a, a freak, a, a, a once a year or twice a year, go to camp meeting, go to revival encounter with Jesus. But I believe in encounters that happen over and over again. People looking for the second coming of Christ, I say, man, if you told that to the early church, I think they would have said, two? Two? We, we, we see him constantly. And so I, I don't just believe in a second. I, I believe that you can encounter him all the time. So I'm constantly wrestling out Christ anew. And one of the things that's been wrestling in me with this Christ is what his role is as a physician. So I want to take you to the text tonight in Matthew 9. Let's read a few verses beginning in verse 9. And this starts with the call of Matthew, which almost seems out of turn for where the story goes. But I want to show you how I believe they connect. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I like what the old King James says. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, that that flowery statement of to bring sinners into mind change. And for a long time, when I saw this text, what I thought Jesus was doing was using a metaphor. Sick people need a doctor. People that are not sick don't need a doctor. And so the sick people uh, are always in need of an encounter in which they can be healed, but not, and I looked at it like him saying to the Pharisees, you're wondering why I'm with these because, hey, some people need it. You may not feel like you need it, but these most definitely need it. But I see a connection of Jesus calling Matthew and bringing him with him to the meal, setting down with a room full of tax collectors and sinners to mean something else. Because 
There are honestly no sick people in this room. This is one of those moments in the ministry of Jesus where he doesn't heal somebody. We don't see Jesus turn to the crowd and find a paralytic man or a leper or a blind man or a deaf man and say to them, receive your sight, receive your hearing, rise, take up your bed and walk. These are all things Jesus does multiple times across four gospels, but not in this story. In this story, he's walking down the street and encounters a tax collector who, by Jewish standards, is the lowest of the low. This is a traitor to his own people. A, a tax collector is a man who is a Jew, but who is employed by the empire, the Romans, to tax his own people, and he can tax them above what is necessary in order to receive the taxes due to the empire, and whatever he can extort out of you, and extort, extorting is exactly what he does, whatever he can extort out of you that is above what he owes Caesar, he gets to pocket for himself. So usually on the back of everyone, the tax collector was the richest man in town. And Jesus invites the tax collector to come and follow him, and he does not wait for a prayer of repentance. And he does not wait to see if, if Matthew's going to shut down his tax collecting business. He just invites him to dinner. A dangerous proposition, because what if Matthew comes to dinner and goes back to tax collecting tomorrow? And now we got ourselves a tax collector at our church, and this is about as bad as it gets, because you can't get worse then. This is a reputation destroyer for the local congregation. And so but Jesus doesn't seem to care. He doesn't ask Matthew's credentials or whether Matthew prays the prayer or whether Matthew wants to go get baptized. He just invites him in. And that one little detail really bothers the Pharisees. Because not only is Jesus eating with publicans and sinners, not only is he eating with the wrong people, but he's eating with Matthew. And we don't know if Matthew's going to go right back to being a tax collector tomorrow. And you want us to embrace him as an equal. And he might rob us blind tomorrow. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, it's the sick that have need of a physician. And what Jesus is doing is not pointing out lepers and paralytics, but pointing out the Matthews and the Pharisees that are in the same room. Because this is not Jesus saying some people in here need a doctor, but not everybody in here needs a doctor. It's Jesus saying every person in here needs a doctor. And that's exactly what I am here to do. But we couch that too often in terms of physical healing. You and I are part of the Western church world. And as part of the Western church world, we have ideas about salvation that are couched in certain terms. Now, I'm in a grace community. I'm going to grace conferences, preaching in grace churches. Grace people have a language. They have a lingo. I know it well. All right? I helped establish some of it. I'm also trying to work really hard to get rid of some of it, too. Because as I grow and wrestle this out in, in my own journey, sometimes I see that we've limited things in the way that we've spoken. We get so used to saying things a certain way, we shut the doors on being able to see it another way because we've already got it figured out. One of the dangers I notice in grace communities of people have already got it figured out. There's not a lot left to learn when you feel like you've already accomplished everything you need for righteousness and holiness. We've already got that part nailed. And that doesn't sound a whole lot like the Jesus who continues to stir the soul. And so uh, some of it's terminology, but the terminology runs deep because once you start putting titles on things, you limit them and you categorize them. And one of the things we've done in the Western church is that we've treated sin like a judicial problem. And so we couch sin in terms of guilt, justification, redemption, penalty, condemnation, conviction. These are Christian words, right? They're also grace words. You're not condemned. You're not guilty. Christ was, made, Christ was the ransom for your sin. Christ paid the penalty. Notice how it's all judicial terms, legal terms. And, and we get it honest, man, because Paul likes judicial terms. And we're, and we're a people that like to read Paul. And Paul loves judicial terms. He loves to tell you that God was in the world reconciling the world back to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. That's, a, that's an accounting term. God literally not writing down all that you've done wrong. That's good news. It's good news. God's not writing down everything we've done wrong. And that's not just for church people, by the way. God was in the world reconciling them back to Himself, not counting their transgressions, our transgressions against them. It's not just church people that don't have them counted. It's everyone that doesn't have them counted. So if you're going to get judicial, get judicial all the way across the board. You don't get to pick and choose who wins in court. 
if God's the judge and Jesus is the mediator, right? We love Paul's terms. He's, there's a mediator that, that stands in front of God and pleads on our behalf. And, and in Christ, there's no more condemnation, another legal term. And we have been justified, and we have been sanctified, and we have been redeemed, and His blood is a ransom for us. These are Peter and Paul terms that really couch Jesus in the idea of the judicial. And the Western church has gravitated around that, and we've built entire systems off of the judicial side of sin. So when we look at people in our judicial system, or in our world, rather, we look at them through terms of guilty. So when we see people in pain, we first think, what have they done wrong to get there? It's so deep in our core, we can't help ourselves. So when we see the homeless, or we see a drug addict, or we see an alcoholic, or we see someone who's lost their home, or we see someone who's lost their family, we cannot help but, even though we don't want to admit it, way back in the back of our mind or our heart, we go, well, you know, they did some stuff, and I know a couple of them. That, I mean, I don't, want to be a, I don't want to be a gossiper, but if you do this and this and this and this, well, that's what's going to happen to you. We kind of can't help it. We're Puritans at heart. Our whole system over here was Puritanism. And in that was high external moralities to, to appease God because we're all sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right? That, that, that's, that's what we all come up under. That's deep, in our, that's deep in the river of our past. That's deep in our roots. Even grace people... We couch all of our stuff in legal terms because we give people this kind of liberty. We stand up here and say, it doesn't count against you. Neither does he condemn you. Go and sin no more. You're not guilty because Christ has paid your ransom. And everything I just said is got Bible behind it. But it's way more Paul than Jesus. And that doesn't make it wrong. It just means. That's the wrong word. I work hard to, to, to land my word where I want. It doesn't just mean. It means, among many things, that I'm not a disciple of Paul. I'm a disciple of Jesus. So I am not saved because of what Paul writes, but I am saved because there's a risen Christ whom Paul points to. Where Paul points to Jesus, I'm a Paul fan. Where Paul points to Paul, I can do without him. He has his moments, if you've studied him. Jesus is always pointing to his Father. He's that conduit by which he's bringing man to the Father. If you see me, he says, you've seen the Father. Which is a beautiful way for all of us, grace or no grace, terms I'm not crazy about, but I'll, I'll, I'll use them for now. Grace people or no grace people, beautiful way to see Jesus is to know, or beautiful way to see God, rather, is to know that when you look at Jesus, you are seeing God. Jesus is what God looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God always will look like. And so in Christ, we see God. Now, Jesus doesn't use judicial terms as much. Jesus is like the Eastern Church, a little bit. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that the Western Church isn't like Jesus, but we, we, we're Pauline. But the Eastern Church, our Eastern brothers, do not have a gospel couched in judicial terminology. They have a gospel couch in medicinal terminology. You see, for us in the Western world, we see sin as a guilt issue. The whole world is born guilty and will die guilty. That's how we preach the gospel. In the Eastern church, they see sin as a disease that infiltrates the family of man and jumps over every border and every antibody and every religion and every wall and infects the human heart. And that the more you commit it, the more it infects you. Now, you go, well, what benefit does that have to us? I, I don't actually think one is right at the expense of the other. I don't think one is the way to see it and the other is wrong. But I do think that if you only see it the way most of us have seen it, in judicial terms, we might be missing the greatest aspect of the ministry of Jesus as the great physician, because in Christ, I'm not so sure he walked around seeing the world as guilty as much as he walked around seeing the world as sick. And I don't mean lepers and paralytics and blind and deaf and dumb, though those were physical manifestations of what Jesus saw to be a much deeper spiritual problem. 
Manifested in the story that we find early in the Gospel of Mark where they lower the paralytic man through the roof. And Jesus does not say to him, rise, take up your bed and walk first. He says to him, son, your sins be forgiven you. Now rise, take up your bed and walk. Because in this man, Jesus sees the opportunity to heal the man of what his real problem is, sin. And the physical healing is simply a manifestation or God's seal of approval on the words spoken of his son over the sick man on the floor. And the man needs forgiven of whatever ails him because whatever he did in that natural realm perhaps had something to do with why he lays there. But what really matters to Jesus is, son, your sins be forgiven you. Now you can rise and take up your bed and walk. Because for Jesus, the great physician, his healing doesn't have as much to do with the natural realm as it does healing the sin-wounded family of man. So Jesus says, the sick have need of a physician. What I've come to do, he says, is to bring healing, a medicinal healing into the family of man. And so I've congregated in this room tonight, both publicans and Pharisees is what Jesus would say, that I have both the religious crowd and the irreligious crowd, that I have the one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum dining at the same table because they are equals in the department of sin. How many of you realize that we are all equals in the department of sin? (laughs) That the human family is equal in the department of sin? I don't mean we all commit the same sins. And I also think we're not doing most people a service by trying to declare their guilt to be on par with all the other guilty because people don't buy it. But sickness is different. Let me me slow down there and explain that for a moment. We don't buy it when we try to declare the world equally guilty because we go, I didn't do what Hitler did. Right? That's what people respond with. They got a good point. Sickness doesn't have anything. Disease, poison doesn't have anything to do with the measure of it. Once it's there, it goes to work. It's like the leaven in the lump. You don't need much, but it begins to do its damage. And so it doesn't have anything to do with how guilty, but rather just sick enough. Would you agree that sin makes you just sick enough? How sick? Sick enough to die. What are the wages of sin? Okay. So couch it not in the terms of the guilty, but couch it in the terms of of the sick and what we might see is that sin is a sickness that needs healed and it's medicinal in healing terms. Let me try to show you, I've given you a healing illustration. Son, your sins be forgiven you. Now rise, take your bed and walk. But when Jesus is confronted by Nicodemus in John three, Nicodemus says, you know, you must be from God. No man can do what you do unless he comes from God. Jesus sort of brushes past the compliment and says, unless a man be born again, he's not going to see the kingdom. And Nicodemus now goes to work on that statement by Jesus. What do you mean born again? Can a, mother, can a man enter into his mother's womb again? And you know how physical Nicodemus tries to make nat, uh, supernatural or spiritual salvation. But as that heads towards the climactic moment of John 3, 16, 17, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. The son of man came into the world not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. That massive gospel mountain. On his way up that mountain, Jesus lays out, if we're paying attention, his idea of what the gospel is. But we miss it because we're so excited to get to John 3.16. But on our way up the mountain, Jesus says in John 3.14, as Moses lifted up a serpent on the pole in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus just says it, moves on, because he knows Nicodemus knows his Torah. And he doesn't have to qualify it. And it's a little unfortunate for the rest of us that don't know Torah quite so well as Nicodemus did. But what really happens is that Jesus quotes a story from the time Israel is wandering in the wilderness and they come upon a a set of wild vipers in the wilderness which come out of the brush and begin to bite the children of Israel and they're falling over and dying by the thousands. And Moses goes to God and goes, I don't know what to do because... Killing one snake's one thing. Killing 10,000 snakes is another thing. I'm in over my head. And God gives Moses the most unconventional response in the history of unconventional responses. He tells Moses to take a serpent of brass and stick it up on a pole and hold it up in front of the Israelites and tell them that if you'll look at this, you'll be healed. And it's as ridiculous as it sounds because that's exactly what Moses does. He fashions out of brass 
a snake. He might have even taken one of the dead vipers and coated it in bronze. I don't know. And he ties it to the top of a stick and he stands out in the middle of the camp and he calls all the sick people to him and says, stare at it. And as they stare at it, they begin to experience the healing that only occurs, that only occurs when you go face what it is that bites you. And Jesus is explaining redemption to Nicodemus. And right before he says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him shall not part. On his way to that statement, he goes, you know what it's really going to be like? I got to be like a snake lifted up on a pole so that everyone who looks towards me can be healed. Because what Jesus is doing there is making his sin-destroying ministry medicinal, not judicial. What Jesus is saying is, is that everybody I encounter has been bitten by the serpent of sin. But if they will look to the one who takes the bite on their behalf, if they will turn their eyes towards Jesus, if they will look to the author and finisher of their faith, it's in this manner that Jesus will die in that he's lifted up at Calvary like a snake on a pole, like the thing that that ails you. Jesus dies as whatever it is that ails you. And as you look at the one who suffers through what it is that ails you, the sin that has ate you up, that you've committed, as you see it in Christ, that's what we mean by see your sin in Christ. I I don't mean see that Jesus is sinning. See that Jesus dies as that sin so that you can die to that sin. Because as you then look up, and the whole medical world grabbed this, on the side of your ambulances, the caduceus, the staff with two interlinking snakes running up the staff. Now they get it from Greek mythology, but where the Hebrew Bible predates the idea by saying the serpent on the staff, the thing that bit you, the cure is look at the one who took the bite on your behalf. And if that be true, And on his way to, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. Jesus is saying that God so loved the world that he stepped into the disease of sin. And he views the world through the lens of a doctor looking at a patient who is sick. And you don't blame patients, you heal them. And if we had had this as our background instead of the judicial idea, we might not look at those in the world and think, What'd they do to get there? Because no doctor walks into the room and goes, well, what'd they do to do this to themselves? They go to work. They don't have time to do the background on what got you here. We can save that for later. And a good doctor will save that for later. A good doctor will save for later to go, okay, let's have a talk about your diet and your lifestyle because we can avoid seeing this again. We can avoid, maybe, tell me what you've been doing. Tell me what, well, you know, uh, I, I don't know if stepping in front of a car was a good idea, but I tried it. <laughs> right? But when the doctor comes in to deal with the man that stepped in front of the car, he doesn't need the details about the street you were on, the size of the car, how fast it was going. We've got to save your life. We've got to go to work. And that was Jesus looking at the human family. And I want to see us at least try to swing the pendulum the other way. We don't need to lose the judicial terminology. It's great. It's beautiful. Because all, we all kind of got it. We're deep. It's deep. And we're, I got that Puritan stuff in us. And we really need that work. We need to know we're not guilty. And we need to know we're not condemned. And we need to know we're ransomed. And we need to know we're redeemed. Amen. Amen. But we need to know that we're sick. And that Jesus is our healer. Amen. And we need to know that the reason we don't go back out to a life of sin is the same reason you don't go right back out to the rattlesnake. Not because God will declare declare you guilty if you go back to your sin, but because the snake will. (laughs) Let me try to to work on that for a second. You're not guilty if you go back to sin because he doesn't count your transgressions against you. He can't start counting them against you because you know better. Right? I mean, he doesn't go, well, you know, I'll count, I don't count them against those silly sinners because they don't know any better, but you've been in church a while. I mean, you ought to know better than this. So, yes, that one, we're going we're gonna to deal with that one. We're going to count that one. And if he does, then he's, he's not a consistent God, and God has shadow of turning. And we have a God that doesn't change. 
So if God looks at Jesus and takes into Jesus all that is wrong with us and then regurgitates it through the resurrection, purifies it, cleans it, resurrects us, then he can't go back and go, well, maybe we missed maybe that one. Let's hold him guilty of that one. So I, I, if all this is why, this is why we're running into, and I say this to those watching as well, there's a lot of grace people, a lot of pastors watch. This is why we're running into issues of presenting grace in our churches and people go sin like crazy. Some of that is that they got off the chain and they needed to go out and do some stuff they wanted to do when they were under religion and religion wouldn't let them do. And so they go out and live like crazy devils for a while. And how many of you know some of them don't come back? Have you seen that happen? Like they were so excited to live like crazy devils, they just stayed out there like crazy devil. You go, well, maybe they were never really saved. No, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't judge people's salvation whether or not they ever met Jesus or not. That's not my call. What I do know is that once you realize you are forgiven and free, oftentimes the real you shows up. And the real you had a bunch of stuff he wanted to do but was too religious to get by with. And so then when the real you gets to go out and do that, if you feel like you're never going to be guilty again, you might just keep doing it. Maybe, because people talk to me about balance. What's balance in the message of grace? Well, it's not legalism to balance out grace, but what it might be is the great physician Jesus. Because the great physician Jesus would say, oh, you're free to go play with snakes all you want to. But I just want to warn you, they still bite. You understand? They still bite. I mean, oh, no, you're not guilty. You're my son. If they kill you out there, you're mine. Me and the angels will come take you to glory land. If that's, your, if that's the way you like to look at that, you know, chariot swoops down in the invisible realm and throws your dead body on and then flies it into heaven. <laughs> Praise God, I believe you're going. How can you not? You're not guilty. But if I'm a physician and not a lawyer, then I'm not dealing with you about the judicial effect of your sin. I'm dealing with you about the medicinal effect of your sin. And so in that, I'll go, look, there's some stuff you can go out and do. You're never going to be guilty, but you're also never going to be happy. Because by doing them, you go caress the snake that bites you, and he will bite you. And the consequences of that is poison. You go, well, I'll just go look to Jesus. Absolutely, you'll go look to Jesus. That will be your answer. But I got another thing you might want to consider. Stop playing with snakes. I, I mean, just in simple terms, at some point, we keep coming back to Jesus. And then we could go, there might need to be some inventory in my life. Like there's some stuff in my life I could lay down at the feet of the one who's already died on my behalf for this. I don't have to go back out into what I used to be. I don't have to go live the way I used to live. I don't have to go play with the snake I used to play with because it keeps biting me and the consequences stink. How many of you realize the new covenant doesn't take away the consequences of getting bit? Yes, but I'm not guilty. Yes, no, you're right, you're not guilty. But you're still full of poison. I hope you can see why we need a pull to this message of the great physician. And I'll tell you, here's another reason why we need that pull. Because in that message of understanding the great physician, we might understand why some of the things are happening in us post-conversion, post-revelation of grace that sting and that hurt. Because there's a necessary adjustment in that realm of the medicinal that will go to work on us. I want to I point out a, a passage. I want to point out two things uh, f- from the rest of our passage. One is found, Jesus says in verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus then goes to the cross and dies for the sins of the whole world. So who does he deem sick? Everyone, Pharisees included. This is Jesus subtly saying, none of you get off the hook. The reality is, is that the physician sees everyone he sees and he sees that they're sick. The great physician looks past the facade and sees our sicknesses. Now, when I say sick, please don't, don't take this as a personal shot at your emotions or a personal shot at your physical integrity or your spirit man. It's not a shot at all. It's a physician looking deeper into the blood work 
into the soul, into the imagery, into the x-ray, and saying, there's a stain. And, and when I say sickness, don't think sin only in terms of what I commit or I omit. Think of it in terms of what sin has done to me from the outside in. Because not all of my sickness is because I made a bad choice. I'm not talking physical sickness. I hope you realize that. Not all of my spiritual issues are because I made a bad choice. Some of my spiritual issues were thrust upon me. I heard bad preaching. I heard bad teaching. And I heard it so long, it's the only thing I know. And it wounded me. And it shattered my hopes and my dreams. It atrophied my ability to hear from God. Made me angry at God. Made me hate the Bible. Made me want to quit church. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, but sound familiar? See, you don't need a message of not guilty. You need a message of a great physician to go, we're going to go to work on this sore. You got a wound. You've been wounded. That's what's happened. You've been hurt. You've been hurt by people that called themselves my children. And maybe they were, but they had selfish motives. Or maybe they were doing the best they knew how to do, but the only way they knew how to motivate people was to slap them around. Or maybe the only thing they knew was to preach a God that didn't look like Jesus, that looked more like Moses than Jesus. That's danger, by the way. Any of you ever sent in a message where God looked more like Moses than Jesus? And, and pastor's proud of it, right? Look more like Elijah than Jesus, and, and us proud of it. What happens to people that sit under that? They get wounded. Okay, that's sick. That's a sickness. That's all of us. Man, I got bags of PTSD from religion. Most of my wrestling has learned how to lay down my baggage. It's just learning how to lay down the junk. I've been in this a long time, and I'm still, I'm still letting the Holy Spirit, and I'm starting to let Him in ways I never did before, probe the rooms of my heart. And you go, well, I didn't think the Holy Spirit looked for sin. Stop thinking, about, stop thinking of sin as something you do, and start to realize that sometimes it's the poison that grabbed you. Okay, it wasn't what you did, it was what happened to you along the way of living this life. And I've got my own rooms. Sometimes we call this abuse, pain, molestation, fear, abandonment. These, they're not just psychological terms, they're, they're terms in the realm of the spirit. It's why we need a great physician. Because he steps into our heart and he turns the flashlight on, not to go, ha ha ha, caught you, here's what you're doing. Don't look at your great physician. That's how you look at a lawyer. That's how we look at the attorney that goes, ah, we caught you. And that's why a lot of us backed off. But the reality is if we go to the doctor, he's not shining the spotlight on us to go, ha, 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 got you. He shines the spotlights into your life to go, here's an area right here. We, we, we want to go to work on this. This is dangerous right here. This isn't something you're doing. This is something that was done to you. This is pain. This is, this is heartache. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Recovering of sight to the blind. Set at liberty those who are bruised. Preach deliverance to the captives. He never said to defend the guilty in court. Because Jesus didn't look at his ministry as an attorney, he looked at his ministry as a doctor. I have come to find the area of your life you've been crushed. And I'm here to pick up the pieces and have to put it back together. I've, Jesus says, I've been anointed to find the area of your life in which you are bound up like a prisoner. And I'm here to help break the chains and just show you that you can go free. I won't push you. I, 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 won't put, I don't push prisoners out of the jail, but I just want to bend the bars for you. I want to open the door and I just want to show you that if you want to, I'll take your hand and we can walk out. Now, you don't have to. We can stay in here. And I understand if you need to stay in here because it's a scary world out there. And people hurt you. And that's what they do. But I've come to heal the brokenhearted. That's something. That's what Jesus' anointing is. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is in verse 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Will you go with me to the Old Testament book of Hosea? Now, the reason I want to do this is because Jesus just made this statement. Go learn what this means. And if you'll notice in your text, there's a quote mark in front of the next word. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
which means Jesus is quoting something. Well, what Jesus is quoting is Hosea chapter 6, verse number 6, which says this, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, why does Jesus drop that verse? He has an entire Hebrew Bible to drop on the Pharisees, and he picks that verse. Think about that. That's the stuff that drives me nuts when I'm studying the Bible. I get real analytical, and I go, man, you could have quoted anything, and you picked that verse. Now, why? I don't argue with Jesus. He knows what he's smarter than I am, so I don't go, oh, that was a stupid idea. I got a better verse for you. Instead, I go, okay, I need to know why you would drop them on Hosea 6.6. In fact, he'll use it again a few chapters later in Mark because he meets up with them again, and they still haven't learned it. He goes, had you went and knew what it meant. So it's kind of like him going, guys didn't do your homework, did you? Okay, so let's don't be guilty of that. Let's do our homework. Why Hosea 6.6? I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I believe it's because of the context of what it is that Jesus is quoting to the Pharisees. Start in verse 1. Listen to Hosea 6, verse 1. We're going to read up to our verse. Come, let us return to the Lord. It's He who has torn, and He will heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us, and on the third day, He'll raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His appearing is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like showers, like a spring rain that waters the earth. And then God starts talking in verse 4. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love's like a morning cloud, like dew that goes away early. That, that means you love me like dew in the morning. How long's dew in the morning last? Just till the morning's done. And that God goes, you guys are not very faithful to me. I'm new every morning. You're new like the morning. You last as long. This is the contrast. God used a little humor on them. Your love's like a morning cloud, like dew that goes away early. Verse 5. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've killed them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light because I desire a steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than, rather than burnt offerings. Okay, now if you paid attention, I know I read fast because I, I don't, I don't want to drag you too long. And I know you can read and you'll do this on your own and this is worth your digging in. But if you paid attention to this passage, you saw a couple interesting things. You saw that according to their prayer, the Lord tore us, the Lord struck us down. Therefore, the Lord's going to heal us and the Lord's going to pick us up. And if we're not careful, we'll go, well, they didn't really mean that because God doesn't knock people down and God doesn't pick people up. And I will agree that God is not in the killing business and God is not in the breaking business. But I do want to remind you that Jesus tells you how to read this chapter in Matthew chapter 9. Because he just said the sick need a doctor. Right? The sick need a doctor. Go see what this verse means. And then he takes you to this verse. And what this verse is telling you is that Israel and Judah have been broken and have been trampled. And that, the, that God has stepped in. By the word of his mouth, he has killed off something. By the word of his mouth, he's killed off something and will raise his people up because the physician must sometimes inflict a little bit of pain in order to bring you to the place that you need to be. And the pain is not vengeance and anger and wrath. But the pain is the fact that a lot of us had our bones broken under bad systems and they set wrong. So I came into liberty and some of my religious bones were, had been snapped through performance-based preaching. I mean, I was dragging body parts into the house of God. And I come into glorious grace and it was like cool water washed my soul. And I realized that God loved me and he forgave me. And I was so excited. But I didn't deal with all my broken bones. And what happened to some of them is they set wrong. And it took me years of living in God's grace to realize that some of those bones were bones of anger and malice. That I was mad at the church and preachers and God and I needed healed. Oh, I'm a grace guy, but I needed healed. If you need healed, who do you go to, a lawyer or a doctor? And I had all these lawyer sermons. 
I'm not guilty. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm the son of the living God. I, I'm never going to be a guilty of sin. He sees me as redeemed. I've been ransomed. While I'm on a miscast leg, spiritually, and limping. And the Holy Spirit has to come and go. We're going to take care of that. And we're going we're to break that. See, I used to preach that if you run from God like that little lamb, any of you ever hear this in old evangelistic sermons, that God's a good shepherd, and if the lamb falls off the trail, God, the, the shepherd will pick him up. And then the lamb falls off the trail, and the shepherd will pick him up. And then the lamb falls off the trail, and the shepherd will pick him up and take that leg in his hands and snap! And everybody in the church would go, Whoo. and then the pastor would go, but then he'll take that leg and he'll set it and he'll put a cast on it and he'll open that robe and he'll stick that lamb in there under his arm and he'll carry him. And, and, and then we'd preach this. We'd go, sometimes God's got to break your leg so that he can set it. I'll never preach that again. No. But let me tell you what I do see. Sometimes. God watches you limp on a miscast leg. And you can't be what you could be because you won't let go of what happened to you. I've met grace people that can't stop talking about the mixture church. They can't let it go. They can't let go of their old pastor. They can't let go of the old church. It eats them up every time they drive down the road. They've cast it. They've masked it as liberty. But it's malice. They've cast it as if I'm free, and boy, I wish they were. But there's a piece of it that's pain and anger. And it's a miscast leg. And the Holy Spirit, the great physician, comes to us and says, I want to go to work on this area of your life. You go, well, Pastor Paul, what will that look like? That's us encountering the God that demands of us the whole truth. That's the God that says, you've got to be honest with me about who you are so I can be honest with you about who I am. And if you're honest with me about who you are, we can go to work on who you are. You see, he loves you just the way you are. You're beautiful in his image. I believe that with all of my heart. One of the great revelations that the Father's given me lately is, Paul, I love you just like you are. You don't have to change. I love you. But what I'm watching is that in, those, in that moment of resting and going, hey, he loves me just the way I am, I'm beginning to encounter the rooms in which I've deposited pain and deposited shame and deposited hurt. God he kills with the words of his mouth in Hosea 6.5. He kills with the words of his mouth. How? The words of his mouth are the word coming out of the mouth of God. Where else in the Bible does the word come out of the mouth of God? The word of God is more sharp, more powerful than any two-edged sword. It pierces the very asunder of soul and spirit, divides the joints and the marrow. The word that comes out of the mouth of God goes to work in us to divide what's not us from what is us. What's a lie about you from what's the truth about you. And then takes the lie about you and puts it in the cross. Crucifies it. Where's that happen? From the word. Not just from the word. This is not the word of God, by the way. Holding up my Bible for those... Don't see the video. This is not the Word of God. This is the Scriptures. These are the Scriptures. The Word of God is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh, and we beheld His glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know what the Word looks like because we know what Jesus looks like. But if it doesn't look like Jesus, it isn't the Word of God. I don't care how many people say, thus saith the Lord, on the back or the front of it. If it doesn't look like Jesus, don't amen it. In fact, you could rebuke it in Jesus' name. Why not? If it, doesn't look like the, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it isn't the Word of God. And so the Word comes out of the mouth. You know where else the Word comes out of the mouth? In Revelation, Jesus comes riding on a white horse. And I don't want to bust your eschatological bubble, but Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't in heaven right now brushing down the white horse, <laughs> spit-shining the saddle putting it up under there and tying it off and running his sword up and down the whetstone going boy i'm gonna get him clock's ticking we're getting closer and then swings his leg over the steed of glory 
and holds his sword high in the air and splits the eastern skies and comes back here to the book of Revelation says two-thirds of the earth fall and are slain at his sword. It's what the book of Revelation says. Two-thirds of the earth slain at the sword. And what we've done is that we have a Jesus who gives up on the Sermon on the Mount after it doesn't work and decides to go ahead and kill the world the way the devil would and picks up the missiles and bombs of the world and comes back and slaughters two-thirds of the earth before he redeems them at the judgment or sends them to hell forever. But what if we were to read it again and realize that before he ever gets on the horse, his robes are already dripping in blood and no one's died but him. Because the blood that it drips from is his own blood. And when he swings that leg over that great white steed, the sword is not in his hand. The Bible says the sword is coming out of his mouth. The exact same place it was in Hosea chapter 6, verse 5, when Jesus said he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Go read what it means and you'd realize that all God's ever going to break or kill in you are the things in you that needed to die. And maybe it's two-thirds of you. <laughs> If you, need, if you need literalism, and Revelation eschews literalism, but if you need it, okay, then two-thirds of yourself needs to go. Well, take that. And maybe, maybe it's what Jesus means when he says, In that day I shall say unto you, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Because maybe what the Bible means is, in that day, whatever that day is for you, Jesus looks into your life and says, the part of you that I don't know, get out of here. And the part of you that I do, take my hand. You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. You and me. Me and you. <laughs> And that Jesus represents you before the Father. That Jesus says, they're not guilty. That Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But that Jesus says, I'll always be your snake on the pole when you need me. When you go get bit, come here. I'll be your healer. You can be honest with me, he says. You can tell me what's in that hidden room. You can walk me in there. I won't force anything on you. I'll listen. This, this blasted into my spirit recently. Uh, I got this one up in real time. What I mean by real time is when you're up preaching and you see something you didn't see before. I was ministering. You, you probably watched this sermon, but I was ministering to our friends in South Carolina on the moment when the woman with the issue of blood reached through the crowd and grabbed Jesus' garment and just tugged on it and then pulled her hand away and shrunk back. And the Bible says she was healed instantly of her plague. And Jesus turned and walked over and said, who touched me? And of course the disciples go, well, no, everybody touched you. What do you mean who touched me? And Jesus goes, no, but I felt virtue leave me. And when he finds her, she cowers, the Bible says, in fear and trembling. The same words Paul uses when he goes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In fear and trembling, she told him the whole truth. I was up preaching. I mean, I'd read it 15 times before I preached it. And I've read it 15,000 times in my life, but it never dropped into my spirit that he never calls her daughter until she tells him the whole truth. Because after the whole truth, he goes, daughter, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Because once you have an encounter with Jesus and she got what she came for when she grabbed him, you get what you come for in Jesus the minute you meet him. You want to be free? Come to Jesus. You want redemption? Come to Jesus. You want to be the righteousness of God in Christ? Come to Jesus. You want the ransom paid? You want, no, you want the gift of no condemnation? Bring it to Jesus. Boom! Instantaneously. But there's still rooms in there. And when he turned and looked at her, she told him the whole truth. And when she told him the whole truth, he went, Daughter, welcome to the family. My kids don't keep secrets from me. Just let me in that room great physician. Great physician. Physicians can really only do what we sign off on. It's true. Physician can really only do what we sign off on. He goes, I got the cure. I know what we need to do. Are you agreeing? And you go, no, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. That's going to hurt. And the doctor goes, well, you're going to die. And we go, well, I'd rather die than experience that. And I do believe that a lot of us 
have not allowed the great physician to do what he wants to do to bring us abundant life. This is why I meet a lot of Christians don't have abundant life. They just haven't let the great physician go to work. I said, I'd rather, I'd rather live in my lie and believe what I believe than to be free if it's going to cost me my family, cost me my church, cost me my people, cost me my... Because how many of you know that when you... Could, did, did anybody else... Did this cost you anything to come to Grace? Anybody else cost you something? What, what, was it the, what was the cost? In some cases, it was everything you had, right? Where we mess this up is when we go to work as the great physician. We can't be scared to preach the great physician for fear that people will go try to do surgery on themselves. You know, like the doctor goes, you got this lump right here and we need to remove it. And you go, I don't like, I don't like uh, needles, so I'm going to go home and cut this out myself. I watched a guy on YouTube the other day take a, take a, he was in his garage and he had a lesion, he had a bump on his arm and he had diagnosed it. He knew what it was and he, the dude just cut the thing out and nearly killed himself. Trying to take this lump off his arm. When he got to the doctor, they were like, please, never again. Do surgery on yourself. Oh, it worked, but you're nearly dead. And he had another one. He was like, okay, you guys can do this one. Which I thought was the wisdom earned by experience. Sometimes when the wisdom costs something, it costs a little pain in that man. The, the difficulty is that when we begin to show people that Jesus is a great physician, he goes to work on whatever sin has wounded us of, is that sometimes we think we've got to go out and we've got to fix us. So then we leave the presence of a loving, great physician and we go do excise surgery on ourselves by disciplines and by performance and thinking that if we can do for God, God will do for us. And you don't owe God any performance for the great physician to go to work. His health care is free. It's universal health care. <laughs> the healing that Christ excises in your life is universal health care. He does not send you a bill. And go, now you got to pay tithes. Now you got to give into this ministry. Now you got to give to that church. This is why I tell the people that listen to our ministry if you get free in an area or the Holy Spirit opens something up to you and you're a different person because of something you might have heard us say, in the, at the end of the day, I'm no physician. I'm, no great, I'm not even a bad physician, much less a great physician. I'm not one at all. I just point to Jesus. If Jesus goes to work in you, shows you the light, you become free, you, you, grave clothes fall off you, all the illustrations you want to use, but you're different than before, you don't owe me anything. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't go to our audience and go, that's going to cost you. That's a $50 sermon I just preached, so you know, pony up. Because I feel like that's a really bad idea because I got some that I should pay people to listen to. <laughs> I don't want to go backwards on this. So, but, but the point is, is I just ask people, go, you listen to the Holy Spirit. The point of that is that there can be no payment to the great physician through monetary funds or through your own physical activity. It's just receiving what the great physician has done for you. Can I close with a I know I've went a long time tonight, but are, are, would you be okay with one more verse? Yes. And if you are, then you've got to suffer through it, and I'm sorry, because <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter t- chapter 2. Can, let me, I, I told you one, but can we do one more for context? 23. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Judicial language, right? Now watch Peter try to balance it with what I think is medicinal language. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness by His wounds or by His stripes, you have been healed. What we've done is we've used this verse to only mean physical healing. And then people come forward to receive their physical healing and they don't get it and then we blame their faith. But I think based on the fact that he started with a judicial statement and transferred it into a medicinal statement, he's showing the fullness of the finished work of Christ. You want to talk about finished work of Christ? Judicially declared innocent in front of God and Jesus, the great healer, goes to work to heal you of the, what sin did to wound you. By his stripes, your stripes are healed because he was striped. You were abused, he was there. 
you were wronged, you were molested, you were kicked, you were punched, you were spiritually knocked down. He was there. He wasn't standing somewhere in the shadows watching. It was happening to him. He experienced it as you. By his striping, we are healed. He took into him everything we are taking into us so that we could receive from him the healing that he paid for at Calvary. The great physician does not just offer you some medicine and send you on your way. The great physician makes house calls and stays to go to work as long as we'll allow him to go to work. And if he needs to reset, I've had to have him reset my stuff. Like some stuff just grew back wrong. When I came out of some religious environments, like here's what happens. I'm not going to read that anymore. I've been reading this my whole life. And they told me that if I didn't read it, I'd go to hell. But now I know that I'm not guilty in God. So I'm not going to read anymore. And I've met my no reading Bible friends. I meet them all the time. And I'm going to tell you, the vacuum that happens without the Bible gets filled by politics, partisanship, and YouTube videos. And Twitter and Facebook, because they're not in the Word, but, they're, but we're Word people. We need something in us. So we turn to the news and conspiracy theories and politicians, and we fill the void of what used to be, I'm going to go see what God thinks about this. But now we say, I'm going to go see what so-and-so thinks about this. And the void is killing us. There's like a poison in there. And we need the great physician to go, your legs got set wrong. We're going to break those. I don't want to give that up, God. He goes, let's give that up. We got some stuff we need to give up. This isn't a legalism message. This is your leg healed back wrong. And you'd walk better if we laid some stuff down and went, I used to be in the Word, and now I'm in this. I used to have a prayer life, and now I don't. I used to be in church with my community of believers, and now I'm a freelancer, and I'm on my own. It's all isolationism. I used to take the communion, but now I don't really think it's that important. I used to, used to, used to, used to, there was a part, but what happened is I got free and I quit. What happens is my legs go back to where I don't walk the same way, and I know that I'm not guilty, and I know I'm going to heaven, and I know I'm righteous, and I know I have no condemnation, but there's something wrong. And he goes, yes, you got snake bit. But I'm a great physician. Let him go to work. Father, you are so good. I have no idea what everybody's room looks like tonight. We all got rooms. We all got stuff. We've got areas we need the great physician to go to work on us. I'm the chiefest. Can I, can I say, speak something into your life? And if you disagree with this, just, just, you don't have to amen it. And if it really offends your theology, just know that I'm not trying to. I'm just showing you where I am but it might help somebody. We in gray circles need to consider stopping with the the insistence of demanding that people stop calling themselves sinners saved by grace. We've hammered that really hard. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're the righteous of God in Christ. Paul called himself the chief of sinners And he did it because he knew that he is righteous, he is sanctified, he is holy, he is Paul, not Saul. He knew all of that. He didn't forget it. He also knew he had a thorn in the flesh. And thorns need doctors. And Paul goes, there's the side of me that needs the work. So, so here's all I ask. Just consider that you are in an odd way, and this might be a bad illustration, but in the way that Jesus has the hypostatic union, both man and God, you are the sinner saved by the grace of God. And the great physician came Not to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. And you are constantly being called to repentance. Constantly being called to mind change. Just let that germinate. If you hate that and you go, I'm not amen in that, okay. That's a little battle in my own spirit. It's to go, I am everything the Bible says that I am. 
and I need a doctor. And both of those things are true at the same time. Because I want to love people as he loves people. I don't want to love them from my pain and my malice and my anger. I want him to take over, transform me. Yeah. Just let the Holy Spirit minister to you tonight, if we would. Just, just listen as he goes to work. Father, do your work as you only you can. May we get out of the way. Teach us how to tell the whole truth. Tonight, let it begin that you are healed of what sin did to you. You are healed of what religion did to you. You are healed of what your past did to you. You're healed of what you did to you. You're healed of what someone else did to you. And where there isn't total healing, don't fret. The doctor isn't giving up. The great physician is at work in our hearts. This is transformation. Heal me. I've been so mad at ministers and preachers. I've been angry and it's manifested itself as jealousy and selfishness. And I need healed. I don't need to be declared innocent. I'm, already, I'm innocent. I need healed. I got some bones got misset. But I'm, they're, they're being healed. Let it happen. It, it starts tonight. Can I say a word? I, I feel like the Lord showed me just recently that We've become so instantaneous with our information, our technology. We can transfer money at the push of a button. We can talk to someone in Japan on FaceTime. We can communicate at the speed of light. And because of that, we think transformation requires instantaneous results. We're a product of our environment in which if we want it, we can get it tonight. But healing doesn't always happen that way. But the Holy Spirit's going to work. Let me go to work in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Amen.